0: This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Eve Ensler. She is a writer and an activist best known for her play, The Vagina Monologues. I spoke with her on September 27th, 2013, at the Nantucket Project in Nantucket, Massachusetts. Download the MP3 of that produced show with Eve Ensler at onbeing.org. I know. Are you ready to go? Okay.
1: <laughs> we won't talk about
0: that. But should I move this closer or we're Okay. I think we're fine. Chris, I'm just going to... He'll tell us. um, It feels a little far. So I just want to say, this is a gorgeous book. Thank you. I don't do book interviews, so we're not doing a book interview. But to me, you know, so much of what you've always written about, you know, it comes together in here in amazing ways. Thank you. So this interview is pretty much, you know, I, I, I... I, I don't, you know, the, the Vagina Monologues is out there, and I just want to touch on that. But yeah. even so, like even where this comes with that. Yeah. So that's the, really, the body. I just say that. The yeah. Body. <laughs> so that's so really, it's not about the book, but it is about this whole experience and wisdom that flowed into this book. Thanks. Okay. okay. All right. That's good. Um, so um, I don't know if you know this, but I always start by asking whoever I'm speaking with about their religious if there was a religious or spiritual background to their childhood and i wonder how you think about that and that can obviously be that can be a an intentional religious or spiritual background or it can be the spiritual message
1: that was coming into the fabric
0: mm. of your childhood i don't know how do you think about that
1: well it's interesting because i i had a very strange in a way religious background i was brought up in a jewish community with a Jewish father and a non-Jewish mother not but I was brought up to be not Jewish in mm. a Jewish community right. so that was really fraught for me and and also just strange you know and then um I was I was brought up in the Unitarian church, which I actually quite liked because it was an exposure to all ways of thinking and all all religious thoughts. And every I remember in fifth grade we got taken to every church and we were exposed right. to different ways of prayer and different ways of meditation and and the church was a very political church. I remember there were really great speakers who came, civil rights speakers and, um, you know, anti-Vietnam speakers. And so it was kind of, I got this idea somehow that religion and social activism go together. But I don't know that I would call that my spiritual life. It was a kind of religious, they were religious ideas, you know. And and I think my spiritual life was so much more through um, language, and through words and through, um, the body. It was always Mm. through the body and it was through dancing and it was through, I was a dancer when I was younger, I was a ballerina for years. And that was a big part of it. It's just, it was finding my, the life, the spirit in my body, um, which was a very difficult thing because my body was so kind of, um, muted to some degree, but it was trying to, it was trying to find its way in there. And I think, I think one of the things that growing up in a Jewish community did for me, because I went to many, many bar mitzvahs, because all my friends got bar mitzvah, I felt very I felt very related and very connected to the Jewish community and to the Jewish culture and to the Jewish ways, even though um, it's a very strange paradox because the only people who really don't perceive me as Jewish often are Jews because you have to be, have a Jewish mother to be Jewish, and yet many other people think of me as Jewish. So I think there's been this kind of dislocated... Um, never arriving in a um, particular religion um, or a particular place or a particular home, which for a long time was tormenting, and now it seems very liberating.
0: Right, right. So, so, how old were you when you first started to collect women's stories? That whole project that led to the Vagina Monologues. Like, how old how old were you when you started that? And then. And then then how old were you when you actually spoke that word out loud on
1: stage? Well, you know, my friend told me, who who I grew up with, um, that I used to do this at camp, that I would get all the girls sitting on the bed to tell me their stories. (laughs) So I think it began very, very young. I mean, it wasn't like an official camp, do you know what I mean? Because I never went to camp, but we would actually um, have sleepover dates and we would have these little things that we called our camps, you know, and I would get girls to talk to me Uh in the summer. And I was always obsessed with people's stories, always. And um I, I remember actually in, in um, fifth grade, I, I formed this club of all the unpopular girls because I was seriously unpopular and I brought them all to my house and I made them all tell me their stories about how they, bad they felt about being unpopular. <laughs> and it, I, it was sort of like, I think I always longed to know what was going on inside people. What secrets, just what the secrets were, because I also wanted to know if there was another thing, another way, another story, another example, another path that was possible.
0: I think that, that must have been really therapeutic for the unpopular
1: girls. It was. They, I mean,
0: they were so lucky to be in school with you.
1: But they, did. I tried to form a kind of rallying club, but, yeah. you know, unpopular girls are unpopular for a reason. We were all really thwarted socially. So the club didn't really happen because yeah. they weren't that interested. They just wanted to stop being unpopular and grow up and yeah. be something else. They didn't want to be I, – so I remember when I worked for years um, in a homeless shelter and I would try to rally the homeless well, women to, like, you know – Organized, and they were like, "But we don't want to be identified as homeless women. Like this is is a very um, fluid identity. This is not a permanent identity, you know." And I think the unpopular girls felt kind of the same way.
0: (laughs) And then, so, but how old were you when the vagina monologues project started?
1: Well, the vagina monologues happened in my Mm lateish thirties, but there were a lot of stories I was gathering before then. You know, I did a play about homeless women where I. Um, called Ladies, where I interviewed women for years in a homeless shelter and then put that together. And I, um, I did a play about nuclear disarmament where I talked to women who were camping out in peace camps and I put their stories into a play. So I was already, you know, um, I also think I think when you grow up in a family where you don't know really what's going on inside people, you know, I, everyone was so untransparent and, and so unavailable and so dis- so far away. Yeah. And I, I longed to know what people were thinking. It, it, I knew someplace my survival was there, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I mean, it is a fascinating phenomenon that, 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 that play, that project, the vagina monologues, that it really set this movement in motion where, you know, w- women around the world found a new way in to kind of Claiming themselves and healing themselves and and loving themselves and each other. Um, so one thing I one thing that jumps out at me, and you actually talk about this at some place in your writing that is uh, this power of naming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and that, you know that's really it runs all the way through sacred traditions. I don't think we talk about it very much in this culture, but just naming itself, speaking a word, and using words intentionally as something that actually is
1: generative, you know, creative. It brings things into being. It really does. I, You know, I used to joke about saying the word vagina, but it's like if you say it enough, the whole world <laughs> changes. And, okay. and people change. And, um, and that's definitely been my experience over and over again with various words. Like when we did One Billion Rising last year, just saying One Billion Rising. Just saying those words everywhere in the world, one billion rising, became not only a mantra, but it was a naming of how many women had been violated, right, and it was right. naming, you know. And I think with vagina, um, even though you know it's 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 it, it is it is a figurative word for the whole package. It's what most women call the vagina. In fact, it, the more appropriate word would be vulva. But I, I know if I had right, right. called it the vulva monologues, it wouldn't have had the same resonance. And I don't know about you, but I never refer to my vagina as my vulva. And I, and I think... I won't, I'll admit it. You know, in an everyday colloquial sense, I wanted to use the word that women use when they're talking about... I think we mm-hmm. all talk about the whole package when we say vagina, even though it's not the whole package.
0: But, but also the other thing that came through is... When you ask a woman to talk about her vagina it's not it 's not also just not that part of her body right yeah. it 's the
1: whole package Absolutely. in terms of everything the, a the story of a woman is in the story of her vagina you know i, I and I remember years ago reading like the, the story of a great in the, inside the story of a great autobiography is the story of humanity, mm. and I think it's actually true for the story of your vagina like inside the story of one woman 's vagina is the story of of women. And I think that's what started to hit me when I started to first talk to women about their vaginas just how many secrets, how many occluded memories, right, how, many, right. how many parts of ourselves were stored there that we had never brought to the surface and shared.
0: Yeah. And you've been, I mean, you've been so many places, you've been all over the world with this, but um, I, I would like to just kind of home in on this the, um, the hold that the Congo has for you. It's also so striking because that's one of those places where the stories one hears through the news, Mm -hmm. which are the only stories one would ever hear, are so horrific. It's one of the hardest places ever to identify with in that abstract way. But what did you say once, you know, I was a goner for the Congo. So would you just tell us a little bit about the particular hold it has?
1: Well, I think for me, you know, I think who knows what my life would have been like going to the Congo had I not been to so many other places before. You know, I think you get prepared for landings, you know, mm. you get prepared for the moment when some place enters you. It's that great Rilka thing, the future enters into us in order mm. to transform us long before it ever happens. And I think the the Congo was coming towards me for a long time. Um, but I think had I, I had been to so many places on the planet by that point, so many rape mines and terrible zones where I'd heard such horrible stories. And when I got invited to the Congo by Dr. Denis McGuaghe, who's this extraordinary surgeon and head yes. of Pansy Hospital, you know, it was one of those things where I, I just knew in my being like I had to go there and I had to do whatever we could to support his efforts. I think when I got to the Congo and the place is so beautiful and in Bukavu, it's just it is. It is just. There's a paradisal quality to it, and a, a beauty in the land, and a beauty in the lake, and a beauty in the nature, and the fertility, and the lushness, and and the and simultaneously the poverty and the and the insecurity, and the war, and the lack of infrastructure, and the chaos, and the you know it, it is so um, living in the center of the story. You know, right, it's right. It's, the, it's 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 it it, it is everything um, escalated to. Be re- so it's completely revealed. Like there are no more, there's no more lies there. So there's no more secrets there. You're in it, and there, and there's something, um, both very disturbing about it, but also very relieving
0: because it's kind of the opposite of that experience you described beforehand, growing up in yes, suburban America, exactly. where everything was below the surface,
1: and where you look at a mall, and where. How that mall came into being, you know how how this kind of overly consumptive society, what it 's hinged on is the Congo. It, 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 it it's mm. it's like the the mines that are being pillaged and plundered, the minerals that are being pl- the women who are being raped in order to serve those malls and those products that people are overly con- and and where everything's concealed, nothing is re- nothing's in front of you, nothing's transparent. Mm. So when you when you go to the Congo and you kind of see the consequence of of what really modern day ca- capitalism has created. Um it's terrifying, but you have to reckon with both the system and the structure and your part in that structure. Mm. You know, And I think it, it, it was a very difficult reckoning, and it still is. A diff- I never come back from the Congo where I feel I, I have no idea in, in some ways how to function here when I come back and how to live in both these worlds. Mm. But the other thing about the Congo was I had never heard the level of violence or sexual, um, well, really femicide—the destruction of that was being used in the service of corporate takeover, of of of, of pillaging and plundering—and that was so extreme that I really saw the future. It was like, oh, this is where we're headed if we don't reverse this structure, this kind of paradigm that we're living in, and. On top of that, the people were the most beautiful, Mm -hmm. loving, fierce, graceful, um, dignified people who have layers and layers of years of colonialism and oppression and pillaging and and everything that is their land and everything that is their resources being taken and then being destroyed in in order to get to the the booty, you know? And I think... um, I was so uh, devastated by the stories I heard. I was so sh- shattered, to be honest, by um, how women's body had become this battleground on which this corporate war was now being fought. Well, and rape as a tool
0: of war, yeah, right? As a exactly. combat tactic,
1: and 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 also how indifferent the world community was when I went mm. to Congo. It was seven years ago. There were many activists in inside Congo and outside Congo who've been trying to get the attention of the world for years. And I'm embarrassed to say, honestly, that I got some attention because, honest, I'm a white middle-class woman from America. Mm. But there were many people who had been rallying to get people to pay attention to the the kind of colonialist interventionist war that was being was happening there. And I think, I don't know, I knew for me it was like we are stopping here. V-Day is stopping here. This is where we have to put our attention because the women of Congo and Dr. McGuigge, um asked us to support their efforts, and I felt like if we don't do this, if we don't give our hearts and souls and resources to supporting their efforts and supporting their autonomy and their independence and their abilities to rise and take back their country, then what else are we doing? I mean, there's an mm-hmm. – and – the Congo is so fundamental to the world. It is the heart of the world, you know? Right. You know? Um, so,
0: so in 2010, you are helping create something called the City of Joy, which also just, you know, that language, again, against the backdrop that you just described is very stunning. And you discover that you have a huge malignant tumor, right, yep. in your uterus. And you have these. You said cancer. You said that cancer landed in your body, just as Congo had landed you in the body of the world. Um, and there's something in your story, and I know you know this, which is um, which is just uh, so iconic for this this great contradiction of, especially of modern women. I think Western women, maybe how, atten- on the one hand, attentive to our bodies and obsessed by our bodies we can we exactly. can be and yet not inhabit them and not even know that we're not inhabiting exactly. them. And for you, <laughs> this crusader mm. going around the world with V-Day, to make that discovery is just, um, you know, it's
1: remarkable. Well, you know, I think... I think everything's in stages and is incremental. I, I think my whole life, if I look at the body of literature and, and theater pieces I've written, I think it's been this huge um, journey and attempt to get back into my body. I mean, every play on some level. But I right, think the body was always in
0: there as always. Always, body, I mean, yeah. if,
1: you know, I look yeah. at the vagina yeah. monologues, the good body. I mean, yeah, the, the stomach. Are, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's not a play. I, you know, I mean, it's been a kind of obsession, and I really. It's really an interesting thing. I think you think you're in your body, and then you get cancer, and you wake up after nine hours of surgery with tubes and catheters and all kinds of things coming at it, and you realize that you've, it's the first time in your life you've ever been in your body, like you are body, you are pure body, and that experience is so, it was just so incredible, it was so incredible to be in my body, to not have this be an abstraction, you know? And I think um, I was just reading some beautiful um, Native American literature um, last night um, talking about the earth and, and how we've always, you know, which, which is just such a true story, how we've always valued, you know, two-legged creatures over 4 leggeds and mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. over the plants. And yet, in fact... There's no way that two-leggeds could ever survive without the, the four-leggeds and the plants. Where in fact, plants could survive without right. anything, and four-leggeds could survive without us. And and I think this um, hierarchy, you know, has so much to do with disassociation, Because if you were really connected to the earth, and if you were really connected to you would to your body, there's no way you could be separate from that. Knowledge and that wisdom, you would absolutely know we were all interdependent, and nothing was that above creatureliness. Yeah, we are
0: creatures among creatures, exactly, yeah.
1: and and that we would be joyful about it and grateful about it. But instead, this kind of, um, you know, really kind of insane notion that we are dominating na- nature and here to control nature and to here to get on top of nature, you know, um, in the same way that we. Due to women, right? We're here to control yeah. women and dominate women and get on top of women as opposed to being one with women and integrated and interconnected with women.
0: I've also thinking a lot lately about how you know how Descartes has so much to answer for it. this idea, I think, therefore I am, mm-hmm. you know, which sounds like a piece of philosophy, but our whole, our Western culture is so, so built so built around in. this way overly cerebral, disembodied. Way that we've created all of our institutions, and we're so impoverished. We're so much smaller for it. So
1: much smaller. Yeah. You know, during during it's so funny that you're saying that because during my cancer, I used to just chant all the time. I feel, therefore, I am. You know, and 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 I'm I'm in my body. Therefore, I feel, therefore, I am. Yeah, I feel, yeah. therefore, I am. Yeah. I feel, therefore, I know. I I can feel my existence. I feel my body. I feel the breath. I feel the living, breathing fiber that is humanness. You know, and I think. This notion of objectivity, as if that were ever possible, as if the brain could somehow separate you from your subjective self, has has created a level of disassociation on the planet Mm -hmm. that, in my opinion, has really allowed for some of the greatest atrocities. You know, how do you rape masses of people without being seriously disassociated? How do you pillage countries and destroy peoples? Right. And, and from, li- not only from their bodies, but from your own. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. How do you live with the fact that 300 people on the planet are now making the same amount as $1 billion? Unless you are highly disassociated and never feel for people who are living on garbage sites You know, and Mm -hmm. literally picking their breakfasts like out of out of the pile of garbage that they're living on. I mean, how do you not feel that? Well, you think, right? Mm. Therefore, you are. Mm -hmm. You know, you Mm -hmm. can get yourself into some mindset which keeps you from from opening your heart. Period. Yeah. Um,
0: I was at a I was at a gathering a couple of weeks ago, and there were neuroscientists there. And artists, actually, some poets, a poet from Sierra Leone and a poet mm. from Northern Uganda, which I mean, some a lot of the themes mm. that you talk on speak about were there. But um, and there were contemplatives, and we we now this is all not in my notes, but you know we t- I just I think you'll find it interesting. We we talked about uh, it, again to language how. Um, you know the the Buddhist word for it, it's it's heart heart mind. It's heart and mind are the same thing. Mm-hmm. And when these Western neuroscientists first started studying um, the brains of meditating Tibetan Buddhist monks, the monks thought this was so hilarious that they were putting the um, the electrodes on, on the, the head,
1: head. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to the heart. Yes, yes,
0: yes, absolutely. <laughs> But actually, the science is actually also helping us understand that our brain is an organ, right? And that What we experience as feelings lodge in our bodies as well. And
1: nothing separate. Again, everything got separated. It's like the separation from the land, the separation from our vaginas. You know, when I was writing the vagina monologues, it just became clearer and clearer and clearer to me. And finally, the piece actually ends with that, that the vagina is our heart and the heart is our vagina. And that, that they're really, I mean, yes, they're separate organs. Heart, mind, vagina. But they're not separate. There's a direct line that goes from and to. And I think, I think that is, to me, the most exciting thing about being alive right now is mm. re, rewiring ourselves and reconstituting ourselves to understand that this is all connected, not only here, but outside of us. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Like that's
1: the, that's the time we're moving into now, like where we get out of this. You know, you can't dominate people without separating them from each other and from themselves, Mm -hmm. right? So there are layers in which the rulers that be came to understand how that separation would be very successful to their interests. The more people get plugged back into their bodies, each other, the more impossible will for us to be dominated and occupied. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really the work right now. Um, And I don't mean that in a narcissistic way. I mean like how – in our daily lives, are we connecting in every single respect with ourselves and everything around us? Because that's where that's where transcendence comes from. That's where mm-hmm. that's where real um energetic transformation comes from.
0: Yeah, that's such an interesting idea too. I believe that also, but it almost sounds paradoxical that transcendence comes from being rooted. Completely. Yeah. Um, um you know, when you had this moment, I mean, you had so many things happen with your cancer and infections and, I mean, it was a long saga. Um, Indeed. It's <laughs> yeah, not a way to, but that you had this ther- former therapist who was a friend who said to you at one point, uh, I was, she was so surprised you hadn't gotten sick up to then, um, which kind of scared me because I, I sometimes think, am I making myself sick, you know? Mm-hmm. But you said, uh, my body has been sculpting this tumor for years. Mm-hmm. So this kind of brings it back into you, but tell me how,
1: tell me what you meant by that. You know, I think ever since I, I got cancer, I've been really looking at trauma, trauma, like what is trauma? What are the molecular, you know, part particle, what, what is it? What does it do to us? And I think even as I was very um, prone to sickness when I was younger, I was always sick. I was always sick because I was being beaten. I was being molested. I was mm-hmm. being attacked. I was right. always under siege. So I was always sick. I, I, I saw myself as a sick person, you know? And that's because my body was absolutely metabolizing or, or, or attempting to metabolize all that trauma and was having a very difficult time with it. So it, 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 it did what it did, which is it got me sick. And I think, I, I, I think we, we don't even know yet what the relationship between trauma and diseases is and illness is. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think for me, I am surprised that, you know, I, I didn't, you know, all the years, first of all, of my own abuse and then self-abuse and then traveling the world and listening to story upon story, city after city after city, woman after woman after woman, who really needed to share her. her and where was it going? You know, it was going into the system, and how do we process it? And I didn't, to be honest with you, I didn't, I didn't treat my body with mercy because I didn't, I wasn't connected to my body. Right. So There's it, also that
0: just, you weren't making that connection. No, you
1: weren't, you weren't imagining that connection as real. Exactly. So where was all that going, and what it was doing? It was, it was building itself a little tumor. That's where it was going. It was just, yeah. and I've spoken to so many women recently who are working, for example, on the front lines at rape centers or in in Pansy Hospital, for example, I heard a story recently of the women who are the intake people who intake the stories in the last, I think four years, three of them have gotten cancer. Mm. And Mm. I've, I've just heard many stories recently, but then of course we don't even know the relationship between reproductive cancers, cancers, for example, and the number of women who have been beaten or raped or incest or, or abused. And since I wrote in the body of the world, I cannot tell you how many letters I have gotten from women telling me about themselves or their mothers who were survivors of battery, who got cancer. They could they could directly see the relationship when the battery started, when the cancer happened. I think in years to come we will we will think of trauma and and cancer, and they will they will not be separate. Mm, mm. We will be treating them. We will be and that's not to say people are to blame. But I don't think we can dismiss the connection between abuse and violation and cruelty and the desecration of spirit, body, and mind and what that does to the cells of our body. In the same way, we can't dismiss what fracking does hmm. to the earth. It's, it's impossible, but we don't, because we're not associated, we're just, we're just blindly going through fracking and fucking, to be honest with you. I'll change that language. Fracking and... <laughs> it's okay, and, we'll, do, we'll find dis- something we it. We're busy fracking and destroying yeah. our way through, you know? Yeah, you know, I, I was
0: always, um, I was always intrigued and 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 got kind of puzzled by this language, or not puzzled, but I felt like it's something we don't pay attention to when we talk about sexual violation, in particular. I and mean, you, we often will use the term "soul stealing," right? I mm-hmm. mean, we have this evidence before us mm-hmm. that when that kind of abuse happens, um, especially to a child, it's utterly destroying of the whole person. Mm-hmm. And it was never just a, never just a physical mm-hmm. experience.
1: Never. And I think it, it's, it's why, if you don't have a, a value on, if you don't believe sexual abuse matters, you will never understand what it feels like to be under siege. But having been a child who, if I just look at the battery, If I just look, even without the sexual abuse part, if I just look at the battery of having the man who was my father, who was supposed to be the person who loved me the most in the world, throwing me against walls and attempting to murder me, what did that communicate to me? Mm -hmm. That I was worthless, that I was valueless, that I was, I, I should be dead. I should be dead. I had no value. So of course that was the destruction of my soul you know, how many years has it taken me to piece by piece begin to reassemble the tissue of my soul to reassemble the, oh, right. the, you know, and, and if we just look around the and I had resources to do that. I came from, you know, I came from a middle-class family where I had the ability to begin to rebuild that structure. I look as I travel around the world at women who are living in such incredible poverty and in, in, in situations where the, on top of the the, the incredible military existence they have there is an avalanche of violence so how are they even beginning to reconstitute those structures right, right. you know and then there was this
0: bizarre uh, aspect of your cancer that it created essentially a fistula which is a very particular but unfortunately, very widespread malady in that part of the world that had so captured you in the Congo, and particularly
1: for women who have been right violated, as a and as a raped. result
0: of rape and assault. And, I mean, and it was. I mean, it it wasn't. I mean, it was the doctor at the Mayo Clinic was amazed. I mean, you. I don't know if he used this word. Or used this word in your book, mystery, at the mystery of what they'd found. <clears throat> he said these findings are not medical their spiritual, I don't know, what was that like?
1: That is, It was wild. You know, when Dr. McWeggy heard the operation I had had, he just broke down crying, and he just said to me, you know, this is the operation I give to many of the women who come in who have been raped and and violated. And I don't know, I was saying last night at, at an evening we did that, you know, I think one of the amazing things about love, you know, Is that if you allow people to enter you, they actually change you for better and worse, you know, if you allow pain into your system. But I also believe that, you know, look, there's so many women's stories that have been inside me and so much pain that have been inside me. And it was what's it was it was what happened and got me sick. But it was also ironically what saved me Mm -hmm. because it was it was a longer river it wasn't it was part of a longer river like that river was a, a river of connection and so living then to open city of joy so that the women of congo could have the place of their dreams was connected to me having gotten fistula which was connected to, right. you, you know it was part of the same continuum and I, you just have to keep going on the continuum like i think when you Look, when we love people, we feel their pain. When we love people, we take in their pain. When we love people, we 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 share what they're going through. And uh, and I think I think it must happen all the time that things manifest in our bodies when we're in connection with people. Mm-hmm. I, I I know it does. Mm-hmm. I don't think we have like the science around it or the proof around it, but it certainly feels right to me. It feels that w- it it feels like that would be a natural outcome.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I want to talk about a few other aspects of, you know, what you learned going through that experience of your cancer. I I wonder if you would just tell the story of like beginning to see the tree Mm. from your hospital room.
1: Mm. Well, I think, I think when I was younger and went through so much violence, I separated myself from all the things that represented life because life was too painful. Beauty, nature, love, children, None of those things felt possible to me, you know? I felt like I had been exiled from that world. And although I looked at it longingly from time to time, I also looked at it with bitterness and and, and kind of this cynical, badass self, which was like, you know, I'm on my way to the city and I'll never see another tree again, you know? And, um, And I knew someplace it was really distorted and messed up. But that's where I was, and I and I and what happened when I got sick was, I um got very very I got a very very bad infection in, yeah. in after the surgery, and it was like a sea of infection in my gut, and I was really sick, and I lost thirty pounds, and I I was just I was disappearing, and I and I I, I went to the hospital, and I ended up having this w- lovely room because it was my birthday, and when I got there, I looked out, and the only thing. I could see was a, this really beautiful tree and I I couldn't write I couldn't talk I couldn't even watch television I was just a thing and I thought oh my god I'm going to have to face this tree and I'm going to but what happened was that every day every hour the tree it was as if the tree began to reveal itself to me you know or I began to see the tree or both those things happened together and I fell in love with the tree I fell in love with that tree I love the bark, I love the trunk, I love the branches. Love- <laughs> it's like a contemplative practice it was just that you entered into with the tree. Unbelievable. And by the end of my stay in the hospital, which was a few weeks, the tree actually blossomed, these white blossoms, and I felt like I, I felt like I was born the, I was born back into nature somehow, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I had I had I had I had been asleep and I had awakened. Mm. Um and and it's it's absolutely taken hold, you know. Um I feel, I, I, there isn't a tree I walk past where I, I, you know, I feel like one of those people, like, whoa, look really? at these trees. They're just <laughs> incredible. Like, I can't believe how amazing trees are.
0: <laughs> I just, you know. <laughs> there, there's something in your story um, about this, this crazy dynamic with us as human beings that it is in being pushed right up against, right to the edges and up against our mortality that we That we learn about living and how Mm -hmm. to save ourselves.
1: But I think, you know, you write books hoping people don't have to go that far. Yeah. You know, like I I made jokes on the tour and I was like, this is not a do-it-at-home kit, you know. You actually don't have to get catastrophic cancer, you know, and be raped and be destroyed to actually wake up to our connection and the interconnection of all things. You can actually do it ahead of time and save yourself, you know. And I think we can. I don't... In the same way that, you know, I, I, do we have to wait until... You become the- like an evangelist from
0: what you saw on that yeah. far side. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't want
1: everybody to get catastrophic cancer. Yeah. I don't want us to push ourselves, push the earth to the point where we're thrown off it. Do you know? Yeah. I think we've got to do things sooner rather than later. And, and I think that's why you write just to say, okay, here's a, here's a cautionary tale. Here's a way we could go that might not mean, you know, like you were saying about our bodies, like get checkups. <laughs> tune into what's going on with your body so if you feel something's off don't stay in it, don't remain in a state of somnolence but wake up to what your body's telling you, you know mm-hmm. I, I want to read um,
0: I just want to read this passage because it's just so beautiful um, to this point I mean, you being very eloquent about what you experienced really what you you know, these learnings um, this is kind of long, but I'm going to read it because I think it's beautiful. What, what if our lives? What if our lives were precious only up to a point? What if we held them loosely and understood that there were no guarantees? So that when you got sick, you weren't a state, you weren't a stage, but in a process. And cancer, just like having your heart broken, or getting a new job, or going to school, were a teacher. What if, rather than being cast out and defined by some terminal category? You were identified as someone in the middle of a transformation that could deepen your soul, open your heart, and all the while, even if and particularly when you were dying, you would be supported by and be part of a community. And what if each of these things were what we are waiting for, moments of opening, of the deepening and the awakening of everyone around us? What if this were the point of our being here rather than acquiring and competing and consuming and writing each other off? as stage four or 5.2 B. It's so beautiful. Thank you. What if our lives were precious only up to a point? Mm -hmm. Tell me what you mean by that.
1: Well, you know, I think this really began during nine 11 in this complete madness and obsession for security, which we all know is completely elusive and impossible. And, just seeing this country become a country that rather than a country of creativity or a country of, 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 of community or a country of connection or a country of, of innovation, even suddenly became this country of, you know, locking ourselves in and barbed ourselves and airport check downs. And, you know, it was just about, everything was about security. And I, I think the way I, I feel is I am important, and I love being alive, and it's great to be here. But I'm precious up to a point. I'm no more precious than anybody else. And my life has its time and its cycle, and it will come and it will go. But my value isn't more than anybody on this planet. And I think in the West, and particularly in America, when bad things happen here, they're just so awful. But when they happen other places they're anticipated or expected. We just assume things happen like that as if the people aren't suffering the same as we're suffering when the bad things happen here. And I think there's something about going, okay, you know, I'm precious and I'm important, but no more, no less part of this same story. And, you know, I remember once when I was in, um, I think I was in Kathmandu and I was by a river. Was it Kathmandu? I think it was Kathmandu. And, um, there were these boys swimming in the river and literally very close by there was a pyre and they were burning a dead body and the ashes were floating. And and the boys were actually kind of, the ashes were kind of (laughs) swimming past the boys and Hmm. nobody was alarmed. Nobody was disturbed. Dead and the living, the dead Mm. and the living. And it gave me this incredible sense of relief. It was like, yeah, the dead, the living, the dead, the living. It's not so awful. It's just, and I think in a way... We in, the, in this country sometimes believe we're so important. Our comfort is so meaningful when it's no more meaningful or less meaningful than anybody else's comfort. And I think that understanding is very um, liberating. It's not depressing. It's very liberating. And recently I've been doing a lot of work for a new play. That's, it's, it's really the story of this freegan and her mother who's a kind of a, a political liberal and I've been reading tons and tons of books on the environment and overconsumption and our carrying capacity and economic growth and just like what we're doing to the earth, which I think I've, I've stayed away from because it's so utterly terrifying. But one of the things I'm aware of is that we have to make a decision now in the world what we're doing here, you know, what paradigm we want to be living in. Mm. Is it the paradigm of consuming and collecting and getting and having more and more and more and proving our worth and proving we're powerful and proving we're winning and proving we're on top and proving we're the best? Or is our life and our lives going to be about connecting and loving and joy and play and building a world where we don't have to feel guilty for the things we have because we know other people in the world Mm. have things as well? I think there's something so terrifying to live in a world where everything you have, you know, has been taken off the back of somebody else. You know, how can we really be enjoying that? It, 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 we're not. And so what do we do with the guilt? Well, it goes into this kind of sublimated depression. Mm-hmm. I just read the statistic the other day that in two years, depression will be the second disability in America. Mm. That is unbelievable that there will be that many depressed people in this country. And it comes from a deep knowledge that everything is not right, a loneliness that has been, that has really grown out of this overly consumptive, isolated existence that we have, rather than building community, building connection, watching the stars, moonbathing at night. (laughs)
0: One of the big realizations that you came to um, was about the nature of love. And, um, I, and I, I really took that in because it's something I've been thinking about also a lot. I mean, maybe at this time of life, that in that extreme moment, the, the loves that we tend to focus on, you know, love with a capital L, the romantic mm-hmm. love, the marriages, the, the lovers, um, that didn't really come through, that didn't feel... Very substantial. And uh and yet you you realize that this that the con that, that that did not amount to you know, the equation we would often make, well you don't have love in your life, mm-hmm. that you were surrounded by love, that you were held by love, and that you'd had too small an
1: imagination about that word, that thing. Mm. Well, I think I think this whole capitalist structure often forms Our notion of love, as if it were something you acquired, do you know, or you got? Uh, Yeah, and
0: we're also just so we're so inundated with totally the love story. Uh, The love story is between two people,
1: absolutely. But but that pairing. Was for a reason because those structures were to build these little capitalist units, right? Really? Do you think so? We well, had yeah, that became consuming units. Think, yeah. of the, think of the nuclear family; it is a consuming unit, mm-hmm. right? And I, look, I think there's many factors. I think patriarchy is a big part of it. You know, <laughs> I think, I, I right. think our our notion of love is so based on. Uh, a, a kind of, um, I don't know, it just seems a very unevolved and very unenlightened yes. notion. You know, that it, it's this one person who you will meet. The one. The one. Uh, uh-huh. And by the way, I get to meet anybody. Yes, there are people who have good marriages that have lasted long, but I have lasted long, but I don't think you you, you, you will talk to anybody who will tell you this is the panacea and this is the only person who I've ever loved that fulfilled all... Of course not. Mm-hmm. And I think... I I just feel so excited now in my life because now that my notion of love that has been dispelled, that old notion is, and even though you think you've dispelled it, it still haunts you and lingers, you know, how do we, how do we get rid of so much of that stuff? It's like, it's in your cells. You just got to keep purging. But now I feel there is not a day that has passed since I recovered from cancer where I feel so joyful to be sitting here occupying the space with you, to be in in, 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 in the summer, I had my friends and we were in Italy and we, we were dancing and we were swimming and we were talking and we were having amazing evenings. And every moment of that was so dear to me and precious. And I think, I think we find our fulfillment where we choose to find our fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And if you're told you can only find it here and you don't look at where it is, which is your life, you keep thinking it's coming. You know right right you know oh it'll be here one day I'll get the big love well you have the big love yeah it's already here
0: yeah where did you you <laughs> talked about um, the daily subtle simple gathering of kindnesses and I mean it was all it was that love you felt it was
1: also the love you felt from those women in the Conga who were praying for you absolutely well I think it was one of those things where I had one of those bad nights where I was thinking about all my past lovers and husbands and the failure of love in my yeah, life and how I, L. I just didn't get it and my own intimacy issues and blah, 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 blah. And then I suddenly realized, okay, how many beautiful people had shown up for me. Mm-hmm who were cooking me eggs, Marie Cecile, who was cooking me eggs at five in the morning to, to settle my stomach when I was in chemo or my granddaughter who packed my bags when I went to see my mother for the last time, or, you know, my sister who was there every minute on the couch with me, putting washcloths on my forehead or toast who was with me every day, just loving me because he loved me. And it was just this moment of like, Oh my God, my life is so rich. And, and I think again, it's like, there are the trees. There is the love. Everything's, the paradise is here. Hmm. Paradise is right in front of us. We are so, I think, and I'm going to go back to capitalism because I think what is engineered is longing. It is engineered longing and desire in Mm -hmm. us Mm -hmm. for what can be in the future, you know? And so, because it's always about the next product, the next big thing, you know, it's this disposable, constantly renewable, but it's not renewable. Do you know, it's this tossable existence. And I think part of what we all have to do is start coming into the poetry, you know, start coming into the what is here, the paradise that is here and loving it and appreciating it and protecting it and cherishing it and each other. And I think part of that is giving up this big idea Uh, And and I think technology, and I think movies, and I think the bigness of all that is so seductive to our nervous systems and our dreams. We're just like, wow, we could have that, and we could have that car, and we could have that fabulous iPhone, you know? Right,
0: right, (sighs) Yeah, we're always adjusting and redefining ourselves in terms of what we don't have. Exactly. As opposed to just... I haven't thought about about the love part of it being part of that context, but...
1: but look how we're so loved. We're so loved through the movies. We're so loved for products. Mm-hmm. You look at clothes and you always see some hot, sexy, fabulous couple <laughs> right. wearing those jeans. And you're like, oh, the jeans, <laughs> i.e. the love. Right. Like everything's, everything's yes. all hooked in to the seduction. Mm-hmm. Do you know? And often, you're, you know, when you wake up and you're in a shaggy state with your lover, you don't actually look like that but it's delicious, you know, (laughs) in its own messy human way. And I think we're always comparing the messy human to that. And so whatever this is doesn't come up Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and a celebrity culture. Come on, the celebrity culture of the couples and the beauty and as if Brad and Angelina, exactly, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) We know exactly what that is. And that is not accidental. What if we actually were content with our lives? What if we actually knew this was paradise? Hmm. You know, hmm. it would be very hard to control us. Hmm. <laughs> right. you know? Yeah. Um,
0: while, while you had your cancer, your mother also had struggled with cancer, and then she had a recurrence, right? And she died. And he, he, um, I, I, f- I feel like you said some very uh, stunning things about Family. I mean, you learned you like your sister. Your relationship with your sister was so repaired through that experience of being sick. And but you talk about how you kind of compared the effect of cancer on your body to the effect of like your father's abuse. That when there's when there's that kind of disorder, that it creates mutations, just like cells mutate in your bodies. It creates mutations in relationships. I just I thought that was really interesting. I I wonder if you. Um, I mean, you were also really able to be there with your mother when she was dying, even though that had been a really hard relationship, and to let go of your resentments from all those years. I wonder if you feel like you would have been able to be present to her in that way if you hadn't gone through that experience of cancer and all Mm. the things, Mm. all the learning that you're describing that came with that
1: i'm not sure you know i think i had done a lot had gotten closer i was at a neutral place with my mother i wasn't feeling bitter or hateful to her anymore um but i'm not sure i was feeling all that much love either i just was neutral i would go to see her i would be kind to her um i think cancer made me so open and porous and vulnerable Mm -hmm that I was able to really be with her and and I wasn't just feeling love with her in those last moments. I had a lot of feelings. No, you were honest with her, Yeah,
0: but you were honest in a way that in fact was, was very loving, right. In a really grown up way. It
1: felt that way. It felt that way. And I felt, and I felt when I left my mother that night, I felt like, okay, okay, this is done. This is done. And, and we're okay. We're okay. Um, that, that's one level of that. But I think when... Somebody said to me last night who had read the book, um, when you don't get loved by your mother, it's a really hard road. And, and I don't know that that ever goes away. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think, look, I do not feel a victim to it. I don't feel like, But I watch people with their babies sometimes. And I watch women who have had a relationship with their mothers where they felt connected. Yeah. where they felt connected to her body, where they felt connected to her being. And that is an absence I will live with forever. It is not to say that that the spirit doesn't fill it up or dance doesn't fill it no, up. No, or, I know. But it's just what is you, 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 I think you get older and you come to terms with what, what you've been given. This is your story. This is what your thing is. This is, you make do, you mm-hmm. know, and, and you make, and you make beauty out of it and you make art out of it and you make life out of it. Um, I think the older I get, that I think that I see the relationship you know I remember once a friend of mine told me that he was interviewing a man who was ninety nine a great artist and he was dying and had just a huge level of body of work and a huge achievement, and all he could talk about as he was dying was the fact that he never had a father hmm. and it really It really struck me that at the core 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 core. That relationship is is like the fundamental yeah. beginning of any growth, any tree. You know how the tree will grow will be dependent on that, and you know, and we become interesting trees as a result of it. Some of us grow that direction, right. you know. Right. But it's still there at the core. Mm-hmm.
0: You said, um, "I just, I just really like this line." Dude. Just as she was winding down, and you, she, she was put in the final word where she died and you said her heart had become the problem it is where we do not live that the dying comes mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Yeah. well you know it's very interesting with my uterus you know um, I, I didn't inhabit it right Yeah. I, you know I didn't inhabit it and it was that part of me that was woman it was that part of me that was feminine it was that part of me that was open it was that part of me you know I I was, I was dissociated from it, you know, and Mm -hmm. I think, I think sometimes with my own mother that, um, I couldn't find her heart a lot of times. I couldn't, I couldn't find her. And I think where we don't embody, we don't come into, where we're not embodied often is where our sickness comes you know, as so, I saw so often lately, people will say, oh my God, I just realized I got cancer in my voice and I've never had a voice Or I got cancer. And I'm not oh. saying, but I do think there is a connection. I don't think we can deny that.
0: You know, I was thinking while I was reading you, I'm, I'm always a little bit concerned about the language we use, especially about cancer, because, you know, in our lifetime, cancer has gone from being a death sentence to a chronic disease mm-hmm. that people survive and, but the language is so combative right it's fighting cancer Absolutely. it's beating cancer and i i felt like i mean you definitely fought but it was kind of like a hybrid um I'm
1: so glad you're saying
0: this right i mean there so it was it was both things
1: i don't feel like i fought cancer no and i don't what, but i feel like i you wrestled with it i right? wrestle i feel like i was in the the um the churning of cancer. I feel like cancer took me and went. Okay. Yeah, and you met it head on, right? You some days. Some uh-huh. days I wasn't feeling like I wanted to go there. Some days, I was, <laughs> you know. Some days I was brave. Some days I was. I stayed under the covers, uh-huh. but I. I don't know that it's something you can fight. Do you know? I don't right, know. And
0: I wonder if we
1: if we hurt ourselves
0: with that. Those kinds of metaphors about illness, and just these moments where life is not what we thought it would be.
1: I, 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 when people would talk to me about you're going to beat this yeah. or you're going you're to slay cancer, or you're gonna, I, I would say what I'm going to do hopefully is become more of who I'm, I was meant to be. And cancer has given me this huge, dramatic, turbulent opportunity to do that. Um, I did not know at the end of this if I, and I still don't know, you know, I'm three and a half years cancer free. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I, I feel fantastic that I've gotten this time and I feel very well and I feel unbelievable lucky to be alive. But I get that cancer afforded me this very extreme opportunity to both release things that needed to go, confront things that needed to be, and to really... You know, I think, I think when things get very, 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 very extreme, Mm -hmm. you have an opportunity to go into the deepest parts of yourself, do you know, and, and really explore whether you want to or not, whether you want to or not, you can, you can resist that, but the door is open. You can go there and you can begin to metabolize another, or, or there's, there's an alchemy that's going on. That's really quite extraordinary. That doesn't happen other times. So you know one of the things i 've been talking a lot about is chemo as as a transformative experience yes
0: and- right, and that 's where I feel like I mean there was some language of purging and battle, but you you, you didn't it wasn 't about you f- it was about that as a, something that was purging what was it you uh purging the badness that was protected on was projected on you but never yours right That was somebody advising you about how to think about the chemo
1: exactly you know if it becomes something where you 're going to slay the cancer. It's oddly then about you and your success or failure. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know how to slay cancer. don't have an idea how to do that. I wouldn't know how to do that. What I do know how to do and, 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 and can try to do is begin to ride that wave that is pulsing through me and see if I can go where it's trying to take me. Do you know mm. without and when the walls come up and I'm resisting it to say okay who's going to help me how do I get help to get to the next place where I need mm. to go in my consciousness that doesn't mean I'm going to live you know I but I know if I had died if I die today I will be much happier than if I had died 5 mm. years ago mm. there's no doubt in my mind about it I'll I'll die okay today it's okay I would not have felt that had I died 5 years ago there was just so much stuff I hadn't gotten to you know, and gotten, and gotten clean, gotten mm-hmm. rid of, you know? You,
0: you, you use a lot of language and Im- imagery of, like, ritual around chemotherapy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But, I'm big on ritual. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know that I've ever heard anybody talk about chemo
1: that way. Yeah. Um, Chemo was so. I think one Sue, you know, my ex-therapist, my incredible friend, gave me this framework to say that because I was terrified of, of chemo. But when she said to me, "The chemo's not for you. It's for the cancer. Right. It's for all the rape, all the perpetrators, and you're going to poison them, and they're never coming back." And I went, "I want to go to. Chemo. I couldn't wait to go to chemo. It was like, okay, every time they pump this poison into my body." you know, it will be the medicine. Cause I always believed in that d- idea of turning poison into medicine. I always love that phrase, you know, like how do we turn poison into medicine? How do we turn, you know, it's yeah. very much part of, of my Buddhist practice, you know, and had been yeah. for years. So the idea that I was having literal poison being pumped into me that could become medicine, um, it really became a ritual and I would literally go and I would sit as it came into me and I would visualize what I wanted to burn away and what I wanted to dissolve and what I wanted to be. And it worked. It really did work. I mean, that's not to say I don't have my own mishigas and I have my dark hours, which of course we do. We're human beings, but am I fraught? Is my daily existence fraught the way it used to be? Not at all. Hmm. Not at all. I'm happy now. I'm, I, I have a great happiness now in my life. And I didn't before. I was, I was always battling, you know? Um, this, um,
0: this notion of being people of the second wind is kind of how you, you end the book, which really is what you're just pointing at. Talk about what that means to you, that
1: I love the idea of a second wind. Yeah. I've always loved it, like that you, you're running and running and running and running and suddenly you get that next wind and you can keep going. And I've always been very curious what, what, what lives in that space of second wind, like what's in there, like what part of us spiritually, physically, what's the, what is it, what, is it you know, um, what are the ingredients of it? And I think when I finished the book, it was very clear to me that, okay, that was one life. And this is, that was one wind, and now I'm in the next one. And what it feels like in the second wind, and if you think about a second wind, you don't do a lot of thinking about it. You know, the second mm. wind comes upon you. Mm. You know, you can't, you can't even think up a second wind, right? Well,
0: it's again, just to go back to where we start. it's a full body
1: experience. It's, it's not total so much a cerebral body. experience. And I feel to some degree that we're kind of in our second wind as humanity, mm. or could be this could be our second wind, but it requires a radical reconjuring and reconceiving of the story. Like what's the story? What are we doing here? What's the story? And I feel like for whatever reason, I got the second wind and I feel here we are. How are we going to reconstitute the story? How are we going to reimagine what the story is? And I'm completely occupied with that idea. And It feels, um, and I just want to say this last thing about wind that I, I just love wind. I've always loved wind. I just, it's It's also a very spiritual image. It's so amazing wind. And at the city of joy, you know, it's in a valley and there's always this fresh wind there. And sometimes it's just, it's such a blessed wind when it comes sometimes and it passes through you. You feel almost in that moment that something has changed in your being, but, but it also is so, it's so generous. It's so generous. It scatters Mm. seeds and it allows Mm. things to grow and it encourages people and it clears the air and it makes things, it just makes things better. And I think we are here now, all of us, to bring about metaphorically and literally that second wind that is going to allow us to evolve into the next state of human consciousness and human existence. And I absolutely believe it's possible. But enough people have to believe it's possible and be willing to kind of move with this wind that is trying trying to come in trying mm. to pass through us right now um the city of joy is
0: established now right it is indeed so and you went back there pretty soon after you very soon had I had gotten to get back through <laughs> all the yeah. infections and the chemo and so I mean I, I give paint me a picture of what it is and what happened? City there?
1: of Joy, it, well, it was amazing going back right after the surgery, the last surgery, and being with the women. And, you know, I was bald and 30 pounds lighter, and they were all freaked out. So all they just looked <laughs> at me and we just danced. That's all we did. Because there was nothing to say. I was alive. They were alive, you know. But um, City of Joy opened subsequently. And it's been open now. We've, we've already graduated 222 girls. We'll graduate another 89 um, next month. And um, it's it's An unbelievable place. I, I've been, I've spent two or three months of the year there. Mm. I was just there all of August. Um, it's it's alive. The Bougainville. we have well, bunnies. What happens there? Um, it's a center, a revolutionary center for 90 women. They stay for 60 months. They've all come from serious um gender violence, um, rapes, mass rapes, um, beatings, incest. Um, they come with enormous pain, incredible stories, lots of trauma, nightmares, diseases. But they all have one quality, which is this desire to transform their pain to power and transform their pain to service. And um, they are educated. There's massive um, group therapy. There's Mm -hmm. dance. There's theater. There's storytelling. There's singing. Um, There's education. There's English. There's Swahili. There's agricultural training there's self-defense, there's civics, there's communication courses, there's sexual education. Um, Women are literally and gorgeously transformed in six months. It's run by the Congolese, it's owned by the Congolese, it's directed by the Congolese. Our job on this side of the water is to find them the resources to do what they Mm. do brilliantly. Mm. And when the women leave, their only requirement is they go back and they become leaders and they teach what they've learned in their communities. And we're seeing incredible incredible results. I mean, the women have formed cooperatives where they're now feeding 250 people. They've stood up to their local governments and demanded rights. They've become entrepreneurs in the sense that they've opened small businesses. They're, They're amazing. They're amazing. They're all from 15 to 30. So they're very highly energized. And I think one of the most moving things is to see what happens when women who have had very little in the way of you know they don 't many of them have never had a toilet before many of them have never had a house before, and they live in beautiful circumstances in community um, with other tribes they never share a house with their own mm. tribe they mm. everything is, is it, to create a kind of national um, you know f- female um, solidarity and and I think one of the great things is to see in six months how radically people change, how radically these women. Are restored, are healed, become fighters, become speakers, become you know um, women who rise up to really change their world. And I, you know, in five years we'll have a thousand women trained. That's a lot of women, and I believe that the the future of Congo really lies in the hand, in the body, in the hearts, in the souls of the women. Mm. Um, I think they will, you know, these women will indeed um, be the leaders of Congo. So it's it's and and now we've. Um, been able to get this incredible farm called v world farm which is the size of central park is 350 hectares and it again will be owned by the women and it will be a cooperative and it has fish tilapia ponds we had 10 pigs here. and it will
0: be part of city of joy it's it? 20
1: minutes up the road oh. so they learn agricultural there women will go some will go to become farmers some will go to school there mm-hmm. um we have pigs we have tilapia and and a good portion of it now is feeding the women at city of joy so it's it's a wonderfully integrated turning pain to planting turning pain to service turning pain to power right right. yeah
0: and there's so in a way it's like a collective corollary to this individual experience that you went through that that a lot of us go through with some almost crushing life experience where uh those become these moments where also so much beauty and learning Absolutely. is possible, right? This And so, I, you know, I wonder, I, I, I mentioned I was at this event recently with poets from Sierra Leone and northern Uganda and, uh, and you know, in places like that, in moments like that, um, poetry and beauty... Mm-hmm take on this power and this centrality. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I wonder if, uh, if part of this, if we are evolving as a species, which I, I, I agree with you. And I think about that a lot. And I think I pick that up in my conversations, but if somehow there's something in there about us not needing to be in such crisis to find that power in ourselves
1: well, the thing and is, sustain we, it without that Absolutely. Kind of crisis, the thing is, right? we are in crisis. So, in every you respect. You mean all the time anyway? Well, we're in crisis. The yeah. Earth is in crisis. Yeah. You know, yeah. the, the, Earth, the humans are in crisis. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a huge percentage of people who are living in dire poverty on the planet. Yeah. So, it would be great to think of us not being in crisis, but in fact, we are. But, I would love to believe that when we evolve to the next place we're not going to have to utilize crisis as the basis for transformation. Right, right. But that love might be the basis or connection might be the basis. And and I think, by the way, I don't feel now that I need things to be terrible in order to change. Mm-hmm. Like that is mm-hmm. not the modi- my modus operandi anymore. No,
0: no. Yeah, you know? And, yeah. I, and you f- do you feel that you can, sus- I feel this in you, that you can sustain this catharsis, like these those things that came to you in catharsis are now... Normalized. They're, they're part of, of well, how you I move through the world. What I long for now
1: is, is transformation. I think having gone through the cancer experience, like I get that there is nothing static. So what I want, all I want to do is go back to school. I want to learn more. I want to grow more. I want to keep transforming. So I get deeper and deeper understanding, deeper and deeper consciousness. And honestly, I want to disappear more and more and more as this ego entity and become more and more and more of service in the way that I'm meant to be. So that just means transforming and transforming more. And I don't want it to be based on drama, you know? Like, and crisis and, and horror Um, I don't know what motivates people. I I, I fear sometimes that that crisis thing is the driving point. You look at like a deadline, for example, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and you're right. Of course you're right that there's, that we are in all kinds of crisis as we speak, as we sit here, but there's crisis that you can ignore at least for a long time. Yeah. There's crisis that we are ignoring collectively. And then there are the, there are the times you get thrown into the hospital and, yeah, cut open exactly.
1: When you get, oh my god, I'm in crisis, and we're in crisis. Like the whole yeah. crisis world, the pit of crisis opens up. You know. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I guess the thing would be, I don't know. Maybe that's about softening. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And and be feeling held by each other, so that we could be open to
1: that pain. I think so. I absolutely think so. And I think play is a part of it and being with Mm. each other in gentle ways and being with each other in careful ways, you know? I think so often, um, in the same way that we don't see trees, we don't see each other. We don't see how traumatized people are or
0: tender Mm. people are. But what you're saying is really important because a lot of this crisis comes to us through um, abstract headlines, right? Not through people. Mm -hmm. So that would
1: still be a different way to get this news, right? It would be such a different way to get this news. You know, I just—I think sometimes if you were, f- if one were fully awake, one would do nothing in one's day except for stop on the road, on the people you meet, because you would see their pain. Do you know? We walk past everyone. Sometimes it just crushes my heart. But you'd have to be able to bear that pain too, right? It's because we don't stop because we couldn't bear it. Right. But you would also understand that it's part of you already, Mm -hmm. so that when you stop to actually acknowledge it, you're actually allowing it to move as opposed to be frozen in you. You know, I I remember years ago when during the Reagan administration, there were many, many homeless people on the street and I just would walk past them because I just didn't know what to do. And my friend invited me to come and work in this homeless shelter. And I was like, oh, no, I'm already working in the nuclear disarmament movement. I can't." <laughs> and she kept saying, no, you really have to come. And finally I one day capitulated. And, of course, the minute I went, I fell completely in love with the women in the shelter. And, and then my whole life changed and I started. But what happened was my depression went away immediately because I wasn't doing this. So much of our energy is spent doing this, blocking out. Pretending we don't see the pain, pretending we don't see the person who's reaching out to us on the street corner, pretending we don't see. And that energy becomes that we're blocking, turns into depression. And I think what we don't understand is when we actually stop and take in the other person, it doesn't destroy us. It connects us. We become connected to the much bigger river, which is that energy that is running through everything as opposed to blocking that, where we get stuck and sick and disconnected.
0: Hmm. I think that's your last word. That's great. <laughs> Do you,
1: anything else you want to um, say?
0: All right. Oh, it's lovely. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Such yeah. beautiful
1: questions. <laughs> beautiful conversation. Oh, yeah. I had that. Um,
0: I also worked with homeless, with homeless people in New Haven back when New Haven was just yeah. I remember. Step. You remember that? Yeah. You, I mean, you, oh, yeah. To walk to Ann Taylor, you had to step over, and oh, it was completely transformative. There's a lot in your story that I identify with. Um, thanks.
1: Yeah. Thanks. Are you doing other people
0: here? I'm going to do a couple of other people. And I'm, I may, you know, I, I actually had, we, we'd already, I decided I wanted to interview you where you were way high up on the list. And then we... Uh, we saw the list of who was coming, so immediately we said, Oh, I'm so
1: happy because yeah. there are not that many shows I really like to do, and I love this show. <laughs> so I was, I was like, okay. they were like, well, you may not want to do a show. I said, well, what's the show? I was like, I definitely want to do that show. And I actually asked ask really so interesting happy. questions. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really felt that. <laughs>